Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 121 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing haunted houses, and I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Lauren Bukas, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 89. She's a South African author, journalist, and filmmaker whose books include Moxieland, Zoo City, and The Shining Girls. The Shining Girls, a horror story about a time-traveling serial killer, is currently being adapted for television by Leonardo DiCaprio's production company Appian Way. Lauren's latest novel, Broken Monsters, is out now. So Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. Then next up, we've got John Langan, who you may remember from our panel on subterranean horrors back in episode 99, and our panel on writers as characters back in episode 101. He's the author of the haunted house novel House of Windows, and the short story collections Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters, and The Wide Carnivorous Sky and Other Monstrous Geographies. So John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Dave. It's great to be back. And also joining us today is Grady Hendricks, making his fifth appearance on the show. He's one of the founders of the New York Asian Film Festival, and author of such books as Occupy Space and Satan Loves You. His new book, Horror Store, is set in a haunted Ikea. So, Grady, welcome to the show. Welcome to Ikea. How can I help you? <laughs> All right, and so we're going to talk about haunted houses. And so I was looking over the Wikipedia page for haunted houses, and they list some early haunted house stories from the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. They start out with the Castle of Otranto and going up to the turn of the screw. Now, John Langan, you're an English professor here. Can you tell us a little bit about just sort of the how did the haunted house story get started and what are some of these early examples that we should know about? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. The Castle of Otranto, uh, Horace Walpole, we generally point to that as the the first Gothic novel, the the originator of uh, of the Gothic novel trend or form or or um, type of fiction. And yeah, it's uh, a novel about a guy living in the, his ancestral estate, um, and he's being stalked by uh, he and members of his family, I should say, are being stalked by uh, a giant suit of armor. Uh, they keep getting crushed by uh, by pieces of this. You know, someone gets squashed by a gauntlet. Someone else gets squashed by the cod piece. What have you? <laughs> Um, it's, uh, it's not very good. Um, but it, it does foreground, uh, the importance of setting, uh, in, in Gothic narrative and, and from which obviously horror fiction derives. And it, um, it specifically foregrounds the importance of the, of the home, um, especially the ancestral home, um, the, um, the, the home with a certain amount of history to it, which, Often does, or it does seem to really become part of of the um, uh, the requirements, I guess you might say, for uh, for a setting, uh, a haunted house setting. Um, I guess if you think about the the 19th century, um, and you think about Poe, let's say, um, in the United States, um, you think of things like the fall of the House of Usher, where um, the um, the ancestral estate of the of the ushers becomes uh, very explicitly connected to the the last uh, Roderick and, and Madeline Usher, the, the last uh, scions of that uh, of that house, um, and it uh, it only kind of gathers speed from there. Um, you know whether it has to do, um, but more generally speaking, with um, the the house as as a kind of especially the the old house as a symbol for you know older aristocracies. Um, that uh, that continue to exist in a, a newer social setting, um, or whether we think about the house as um, a more general trope for the past, for your inheritance, um, it, uh, it it continues to really occupy a central place down through the the Gothic and horror literature of the 20th century. Whether it's uh, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, or Richard Matheson's Hell House, or um, or Stephen King's The Shining, um, on into something uh, more recent like uh, Mark Danielewski's House of Leaves. Um, it uh, it seems to be a trope that, that uh, uh, artists have just been able to return to time and time again. And how about Grady? Do you uh, are you a fan of these older things? Oh yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I think a lot of the the early 20th century and late 19th century 
a lot of the haunted house stuff they were writing is so much better than what got written later, simply because a lot of it didn't dwell over the backstory of the ancient family curse or things like that. Like uh, Algernon Blackwood wrote a great story called The Empty House. Um, and literally these people go thrill seeking at a haunted house and then just poop their pants because it's so scary. And the whole thing is the actual experience of being on what they're experiencing. There's no attempt to sort of like, you know, there was an Indian burial mound here <laughs> and all this. And um, there's a great story by W.F. Harvey called uh, The Clock, um, which is, is which is another one just like that. It's just simply experiencing this this unquiet house with it. And, it, and you get the picture. It might be a ghost chicken. But um, it's uh, there's no attempt to piece anything together, and I think that makes it so much worse um, and scarier. Well, I mean, John Lankin mentioned The Haunting of Hill House, which is from 1959, which is yeah. much more recent. But that seems to me that it shares that same quality you're talking about with these older haunted house stories of, of a sort of quiet dread. Yeah, I mean, the, the Haunting of Hill House is like, I, I really, I don't know if these guys would argue with me, but I think it's the haunted house book. I mean, it really is sort of the measure by which all others are judged. And it does have a backstory, actually. I mean, quite an extensive one for the haunting and the house, but so much of the book is simply not taken up with trying to solve it, but but simply experiencing it. But I mean, I really do think it's the yardstick for all the other ones. Uh, John Langans, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it is a great book. It's absolutely a, a, a great book. And, and maybe a, a measure of its greatness is the, the number of novels that have come after it, and I think even films that have come after it, that have returned to it as um, almost as, as laying out this kind of foundational situation, dramatic situation, where a group of psychic investigators go to a place that's supposed to have this really terrible history, and they set up camp there to try to study it. And when Richard Matheson writes Hell House, which is very obviously a response to Hill House and an attempt to kind of one up what Jackson is doing, it's exactly the same thing. Oh, this house, you know, Hell House is even worse. <laughs> <laughs> These psychic investigators are, are um, they've got even more going on uh, than uh, than Jackson's did. And, and you know, later still. Um, when Stephen King does something like uh, Rose Red from a few years ago, um, which was a, a, a televised miniseries, although there was, a, I think, a tie-in book that, that someone, not King, wrote. I can't remember the journal of uh, one of the fictitious characters in, in, uh, in The Haunted House. Um, it's the same thing. It's a group of psychic investigators who were going to study this uh this particular place that has this terrible reputation. So I, I do think that Jackson gives you this kind of template that, I, I mean, even a film like, like say, um, The Blair Witch Project, which has that wonderful, horrifying house at the end. I, I don't really think of it as necessarily a haunted house film, but certainly there is a terrible house at the end of it. But even that is plugging into, in, in some ways, um, that tradition of, of investigators who were going to, to seek out the truth and almost the sort of scientific truth, the documentary truth behind some kind of terrible event. And I, I think, I suspect that it, it's actually a kind of inheritance that we have from, from kind of late 19th century um, uh, attempts to, to scientifically understand what's going on, you know, spiritualism, um, uh, attempts to scientifically understand uh, apparent supernatural phenomenon. And... Um, you could probably make an argument, um, just sort of thinking on the fly here, that this even carries over into all these um, so-called reality TV shows, <laughs> sort of ghost hunters or whatever. Where, what do the what do the, the the what does the TV crew do? They go and they set up in in some supposed haunted location, and then uh, shoot everything in night vision and, and yell a lot, um, you know, sort of daring the ghosts to to show themselves to them. Um, so I think that, that Jackson gives you this this model that just um, is is has proven to be really really powerful. Well, yeah, and you mentioned Richard Matheson's Hell House, and that's one that really I don't remember it super well. But the thing that really sticks in my mind from that book is that it's like you were saying that it really takes kind of a science fictional approach to ghost hunting, where they have all this scientific equipment and they're trying to measure it. Um, 
How about uh, Lauren? Have you uh, have you read Hell House or Haunting of Hill House? Do you want to throw in anything about those? Um, well, I think you know the problem is John is being very articulate and just nailing everything I want to say, and every time he raises a point, I'm like, yes, that. Um, but I think it's interesting, uh, you know, to see how people t do different riffs um, on on that foundation, um, like 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 House of Leaves, um, and how they do try to scientifically measure this house, which has suddenly developed strange angles and strange dimensions. And they do try to get a grip on it and go deeper and deeper into it, trying to find some kind of explanation. There was also an, a recent um, graphic novel that I read uh, by Dan Goldman called Red Light Properties. And it puts a very nice spin on you know, the, the classic haunted house model, which is that there is a bunch of estate agents who specialize in haunted houses and cleaning them out and reselling them. Well, I mean, Kareti, you mentioned that you liked the older stories better. Could you say a little bit more about what about the newer stories kind yeah, of I'm, annoys you? Or? Not annoys me, but like John was just talking about these ghost hunter shows. Um, and one of the things I think is really, really interesting about those, because there's not a lot that's interesting about them, <laughs> is um, I spent a long time working for this this group that did real parapsychology stuff. And so I spent a lot of time in their archive reading these reports on haunted locations. It goes to speaking to people who felt like they lived in a haunted house and things like that. And the biggest difference between fictional haunted houses and hauntings and real haunting experiences for people, uh, put real in quotes or not, however you feel, um, is that in real life, everything can be haunted. Like, you know, there were haunted novelty supply warehouses and medical record filing facilities and gardens and sidewalks and barns. And, you know, it, it, but there was there, none of them had this deep backstory. You know, this used to be a lunatic asylum and then they turned it into condos and now everyone's <laughs> haunted. And and that's fiction. Fiction really is doing something different. Um, and the other thing is with hauntings that people were experiencing, they were really subjective, very emotional experiences. Um, like they were just for them. And with haunted house books, like John was saying, like with Haunting of Hill House, the Shirley Jackson book or, or Richard Matheson's uh, Hell House, this idea that any bunch of yutzes can go into somewhere that has a bad, dark history and experiences haunting, that's very much in fiction. And what I find really interesting about the ghost hunting shows is they're taking that fictional template. It's a place with a bad history that looks spooky and a bunch of people can just walk into it like in Hell House and use their science to find the ghosts. And it's such, uh, um, it's really interesting to see. I mean, it's almost like watching people do live action role playing, but just like on TV with night vision. Um, and, and it seems like a lot less fun. Um, so a lot of, that's one thing that really gets me about hauntings when there's all this emphasis on the backstory of the place. Um, because with stuff like Turn of the Screw, the person who's haunted isn't the house, it's the governess. Um, you know, and with, with like, um, I'm trying to think with the shining, um, the Overlook Hotel is only haunted in a reaction to um, uh, Danny being there and Jack being there. They're the people who sort of pull out the haunting from the place. Um, so when you get into something that's like, ah, I, I find that, I feel like it's so anti-human, something like the Amityville Horror. Like, you're a perfectly normal person. You move into this house. It's the wrong house. You're an asshole. You're going to lose all your money. Everything you spent on this house is out the window. The only thing you can do is run away and scream. That's it. That's your only option. Um, like, it's so anti-human and depressing and, and just horrible. It just drives me bananas. Or worse than paranormal activity, stay in the house and not run screaming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like any choice you make is wrong. You're going to lose your money. You're going to lose your family. You're going to go insane because you made this one bad decision. Um, it, it drives me. It's so, it's so Old Testament. Uh, speaking of paranormal activity, I actually haven't seen those movies, but in a previous episode, we had a guest say Don't. that. Uh, I guess, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically give those as the, um, the embodiment of everything that's wrong with horror movies today. Um, Lauren, what do you think about? I guess I, 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 I gather you agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, I've only seen the first one, um, but it was just the characters were so painfully stupid, and it was so frustrating. And I think what makes a great haunted house movie is where the characters react intelligently, 
um, and you have sympathy for them and, and that you do have this kind of sense of creeping dread. And when I asked on Twitter earlier for great suggestions on, on haunted house movies, one that came back to me a lot from my followers was Alien, which in many ways is a classic haunted house movie because there is a horrible creature within your domestic um, situation. And it's not based on, you know, ripping apart the teenagers who are having sex on the front lawn um, or the people who stay in bed despite the, you know, the sheets being ripped off and horrible footprints appearing near their child's room and just stay in the house. It's, it's insane and stupid. I think Alien also solves the number one problem with haunted house books and movies, which is why don't they just leave? You know, like that's always a, just go yeah. outside, just wait in the yard. Um, and Alien, they can't, they'll decompress. I mean, what do you guys think are the good haunted house movies? Or like, what are your favorites? Uh, John Langan, what would you say are your favorite haunted house movies? Oh, don't let him talk first. He's going to steal all the good ones. <laughs> no, actually, I, I was, and I was going to steal from you, Lauren. I totally was because I saw that you had listed on uh, the uh, the Twitter responses that you'd gotten session nine. Okay, that is one of my that is my favorite movie. You cannot have that. It, it, I will. I will defer to you and let you talk about that because I agree with you. I think that's a wonderfully, utterly creepy film, um, and I, I think where it where it goes, where it winds up, um, it's uh, um, uh, yeah, it, it's just remarkable. So, uh, so I'll kick it over to Lauren and, and say, talk about. Why don't you talk about Session Nine? Session Nine is so beautifully creepy and disturbing it's not technically a house it's an asylum that this wrecking crew are going into to remove the asbestos from but it is all about the unraveling tension in the crew um and there's so much psychological suspense and the way it just tips into violence and horror and these strange recordings that they find of sessions, audio recordings of sessions with the psychologists. And it plays off all these amazing tropes like the satanic scares and the invented child abuse and human frailty. It is a very human movie. It's remarkable. And, and I found the ending, the last 30 seconds were one of the creepiest things. Uh, it is my top horror movie. Uh, let's see. Some of the ones that our listeners mentioned on Facebook were 13 Ghosts, The Others, uh, the 1973 movie Hell House, and The Conjuring. Um, I guess I, I thought... Oh, great. Do you want to... No, it's just because I don't know why anyone would say The Legend of Hell House. It is such a boring movie. Well, to be fair, he saw it when he was a kid. So Okay, well, fair enough. Monster House was really good. That's a kid's oh, yeah. movie, and that's really scary. It's great. I won't show it to my, my um, six-year-old, because it's actually too scary. It is terrific, though. No one pays that much attention to it. It's so good. I mean, 13 Ghosts I saw, that one was interesting to me because they have the ghosts, from what I remember anyway, they have the ghosts all kind of trapped in the basement, and... Uh, and, and it's like the, the it's, it's sort of like an alien, I guess, the, the, or aliens anyway, the, the human... Uh, like the the humans are almost as bad as the the ghosts in a way, or at least some of the humans are. Um, and 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 there's sort of that scene to me sort of prefigured the scene in Cabin in the Woods where they have all the uh the monsters underground in this big prison complex yeah. almost. Well, also the others is a great one just because it keeps you guessing. You know, the all, a lot of the you don't know what kind of movie you're watching. You think you're watching a haunted house movie, and it turns out to be very different. Um, which solves all the problems of, you know, why don't they just leave or something like that. And another one that, you know, even watching it now still holds up simply because it's one of the few haunted house movies where people make all the right decisions is Poltergeist. You know, things are happening. They try rational explanations. They don't work. They get the parapsychologist. They seem to fix it. The ghosts are still there. So they go to the Holiday Inn. They move out, you know. See, John, John Lang, we should give you a chance now uh, Now that Lauren got to talk about Session 9. Do you have any other horror movies you want to mention that you particularly Lauren, like? Lauren took everything I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think The Shining. Oh, yeah. But isn't it really about the genocide of the Native Americans? Or is it about how Kubrick faked the moon landing? <laughs> uh, Grady, maybe you want to explain what you're talking about there? Well, The Shining, I think, is in a. I mean, it's a movie I didn't appreciate until much later in life. Um, 
And it's really Kubrick left in a lot of loose ends. I would almost say it's better than the book. He put in so many loose ends just to mess with people. And as a result, all these conspiracy theories have sprung up around it. There's a movie, I think you can get it on Netflix streaming right now, called Room 279, 273, 279. Room 237. 237, thank you. Um, which basically gives all these conspiracy theorists a chance to speak. So the person who makes the case that there's a carefully coded message about American genocide in there, the person who makes the case that um, it's about the rise of uh, fascism in Europe, the person who makes the case that it's about how Kubrick secretly faked the moon landing, and then when the conspiracy got out of control and one of his friends was murdered, that he made uh, The Shining as this sort of coded uh, confession for future generations. Um, and, you know, the amazing thing about it is none of these theories have to be right, but they all fit the movie. Um, and it just depends on how you're looking at it. And the movie does amazing things with, um, you know, Kubrick was such a careful filmmaker, but there are things like in a scene where um, Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson are speaking furniture and props are disappearing and reappearing in the scene as the camera angle switches. I mean, that was intentional. The geography of the Overlook Hotel in the movie is very carefully set up so that it doesn't make sense. I mean, if you actually map out the hotel when Jack Nicholson goes and sits down for that job interview in the beginning, and behind the manager are these windows looking out on the lawn, those windows in reality should be looking out on the room they just walked in from. So it's a movie that's really made to mess with your sense of space and orientation, which is um, a huge part of Haunted House books. Well, but I think, Creator, your contention that it's better than, than the book is controversial, uh, not least among uh, Stephen King himself. Uh. <laughs> right. Did you see his version? Because he did a miniseries that was um, based on his more accurate version. And at the end of that, the ghost of Jack Torrance attends Danny's high school graduation and cries. So I'm with Cooper. Mm. Uh, how about John, John Langan and Lauren? You have a, you have any take on that? Well, I think The Shining is just a remarkable and incredibly disturbing movie. And the way it plays with pattern and sound, you know, you, you come away from it haunted. Um, and, and very disturbed. It's it's very it's fascinating, and I think that's what you want a haunted house story to do: is to linger with you, to make you uneasy. And one um, I saw recently, which was fantastic, was Sinister, because it really subverts your expectations. There's this moment with this thing coming out of a box, and it's so horrible. And then suddenly it tips, and you realize what it actually is, and that makes it even more horrible. And I really, I really like that. I really like that. You know, of course, you know, there are movies like The Conjuring, which is great. And it's, you know, there are lots of shocks and scares and it's creepy and the characters are reasonably smart and you, you have some feeling for them. But I really like the movies that understand the genre and, and play with it and subvert your expectations. That's, that, that's, I think, what really kind of undoes me. All right. So we've talked about some of the really good ones. Uh, Grady, you mentioned that the Hell House movie you thought was terrible. What and and I, I imagine you've seen probably a lot of terrible haunted house movies, right? What are there any that stick out in your mind as just being really, really terrible? No, because I, I I mean for me I find them all fascinating on a certain level. I just the the legend of Hell House film is just really ponderous. Um, it, it's just so overly determined that it really kills any sense of suspense or enjoyment. Um. Lauren was just talking about uh, The Conjuring, which is a really fun, well-made movie. And the thing about The Conjuring, though, where I feel like they sort of went a little wrong with that, is that there's they touch on this idea that um, Lily Taylor could also be her harming her own daughters. Uh, that there could be like this child abuse in the family that's almost, you know, that, that she's possessed to do. And that's such a, a really resonant idea. Um, and there are movies like Dark Water that really explore that, uh, the Japanese film. But, um, but they sort of shy away from that. And the haunted house movies that are good are the ones where it's a damaged person. And I think Lauren mentioned this earlier. And the house is reflecting back their problems. I mean, that's one reason The Shining, the book is so good for what it is, is it's about the family and the house is just a giant mirror for them. Or an amplifier. Yeah. I also thought that The Conjuring was really well done. The thing that... It was great. It was fantastic. It was so fun. 
But I mean, the th- like the th- toward the, I start it started to lose me a little bit toward the end, and this is just my personal thing. But whenever they get too much into the religious stuff, that kind of throws me out of a little bit because I'm you know I'm not religious at all. And so when he's saying, um, you know, he's doing the exorcism and he says, "Depart this body in the name of Jesus," it just makes me think. Well, wait, what happened when people got possessed before Jesus appeared on the scene? You know, I mean, because people have been around for a hundred thousand plus years, right? So if you got possessed before Jesus, I mean, how did, how, did they exor- how did they perform an exorcism? Or could you just never get that ghost out of you? Or is Jesus the ghost? Yeah, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> you know, there are lots of elder, elder gods. You know, I'm sure they probably appeal to Zeus or the oracles or the great worm god Krom. You know, we've had a lot of gods to appeal to to help cure the insane and and often you know possession was given as a reason you know possessed by demons uh it happened recently in south africa a few years ago when our national cricketing captain said that satan possessed him and made him cheat um and match fix so it's it's a very it's a very deep strong idea which still endures and uh, you know i think that idea of possession and haunting it's very interesting and i think also seizing on a damaged person and amplifying what is already there and reflecting it back into them is often what makes these movies so compelling. There's a great haunted house movie from Japan that I think might go down in history as the most insane and satisfying haunted house movie of all time. It's just called House. And I think it's on a disc from Criterion these days. And it's it's these girls, they go, they spend the weekend at one of their aunt's country houses, and it is just batshit loopy. I mean, there's a piano that eats people and severed fingers that come back to life and do a dance, and cats with glowing eyes and severed heads flying through the air and rooms that fill up with blood and clocks that are powered by human meat. And I mean, it's just this insane, it's almost as if like a 70s teen soft focus pop show about a girl band suddenly like got crossed with the most ridiculously over the top uh, Japanese horror movie. But at the heart of this movie, no matter how ridiculous it is, it's about a girl whose mother's died. Her father's gotten remarried and she's just got all these issues about missing her mother and her mother being replaced and sort of growing up and becoming a woman. And isn't that replacing and forgetting her mother also? And, you know, it's what Lauren was saying a minute ago that in the end, a haunted house movie lives and dies based on how it serves, how the house serves as a mirror of the people inside of it. Oh, I just wanted to interject something silly. Um which is, can we make a case for Toy Story being, Toy Story 1 being a haunted house movie? Oh, dude, I want to hear this theory. That's all I got. Well, I mean, like, the, you know, the, the, the toys animate in weird ways, uh, you know, and they terrorize that poor kid, Sid. It's, it's really horrible. Um, you know, who's to say that that's not a malevolent spirit? From Sid's point of view, it is a horror movie. Absolutely. Uh, M.R. James has an essay, uh, one of his essays on, on ghost stories, which are, are never that, the essays are never that long, but I, I do find them kind of fascinating. And, and one of the things he talks about is the malice of inanimate objects. And um, there is something uh, really uncanny. I'm thinking about the, the um, I was just watching a trailer for some horror movie. I, I, I'm sorry, the name has gone out of my head, but it's about an evil doll. Um, and certainly dolls are a focus of, of so many. There, there's a, there's your next episode, <laughs> next <laughs> year's Halloween episode, you know, evil dolls. But, um, but they're, they're such a focus, um, for, for horror, certain kind of horror narrative, um, which would, uh, so, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't usually think of Toy Story 1 as, <laughs> as a, as a haunted house film, but yeah, I, I mean, it certainly taps into that, doesn't it? That, that anxiety that, that you might have, you know, why can't I find that toy? It was right, right. I left it right here. Um, what happened to it? Um, and, and the, you know, when you're a kid, I guess you might have the sneaking suspicion that the toy went off and did something crazy or, or, and I can remember, it's funny to think about this. I can remember when I was a kid, for some reason, one Christmas, my parents bought my younger brother, um, an alien toy. Um, it was when they, they, they came out with a, um, about a 15 inch 
articulated uh, toy action figure, I guess you would call it, of the alien from the alien movie. Uh, its head glowed in the dark. It was utterly, it did silver teeth. It was this utterly horrifying thing. And I have no idea really what my mother and father were thinking. <laughs> but, um, it um, uh, years later, years and yet decades later, my mother gave it to me and I have it safely hidden somewhere so it can't get out and wreak its mischief. But I, I think that that maybe there, there's there's a, a way in which what's happening in in uh, the haunted house narrative, you know, considered broadly, um, is intersecting anxiety our anxieties about our stuff, um, and um, that that there's a, a kind of uh, a weird materialist dimension to all this kind of stuff. You know, I, I mean, to to go off on a crazy tangent for a second. I mean, when when one of Marx's critiques of capitalism, right, is that in capitalism, things become more real than people are. And he talks about these moments where an object hails you, as as he puts it, like the, the object gives you reality. Um, I guess we would think about it in status terms. You know, I've got my sports car or, or whatever it is, and that makes me real, you know, having this thing. And I can't help but think that that the the haunted house narrative, um, and the Toy Story narrative too, that that they're they're plugged into to a similar uh, a similar kind of of um, thing. <laughs> I'm looking for a better word, a zeitgeist conceptual framework. I'm, I'm not sure, but um, our things are are more real than we are. Um, I guess for a lot of us, right, our our house is the biggest purchase that we'll ever make in our in our lives, and it's part of the reason I think that something like the Amityville Horror, yeah, it's it's utterly wretched, it's it's utterly terrible, and yet it continues to have such resonance because it's it's interesting to to think about in how many haunted house narratives, um, or how few of them maybe, they're about buying the house. In, in so many of them, you go to even The Shining. The Shining, in a, in a way, kind of epitomizes this, right? It's a hotel. It's a place that you go to stay temporarily. But uh, Hill House is a place, Hell House is a place that you rent out so that you can have your psychic investigations. But in the Amityville Horror, you're buying that house. And you're buying that house, and it's all full of horrible things. It's all, you know, oh, my God, think about the money. Think about the bills. Um, and and so I, I, I don't know. I, I guess it's a long distance to have, to have traveled to Toy Story, I suppose. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, no, I mean, John, I agree with that, though, because it seems like in so many horror story, horror haunted house stories, the people got an unbelievable deal on this house. And they bought a bigger house than they ever thought they could afford. And it's almost like the fact that it turns out to be haunted is like a punishment to them, that they're being punished for their greed, for um, for reaching above their station or, you know, wanting too much in terms of uh, material things. Well, there, I think there is a class element to to a lot of, of this. There's a, there was a, um, a neat novel by um, Sarah Waters a couple of years ago called The Little Stranger. And it's it's one of those haunted house stories that are about is the house really haunted or not. But without um, without wanting to give too much away, um, spoiler alert, right? I do think one of the things that's going on in that novel is that the protagonist is actually who's a sort of middle class uh, doctor is haunting this particular mansion with his kind of class aspirations slash kind of class nostalgia. Um, and I, I do think that, that, um, that, yeah, the, the, the economics of, of, um, of haunted house stories are kind of, are, are kind of fascinating. You don't see a lot of haunted house stories that are about, um, you know, the haunted shack or the haunted double wide trailer or something like that. Um, that there's, there's, it's, it's almost as if it has to be opulent in order to be, to be haunted. Well, look at, um, you know, uh, Turn of the Screw, which is about a governess who's hired to come into this really fancy pants family and take care of their kids. And the house and the presence of other servants drives her batty. Or um, 
I'm trying to think. I mean, there's a, or in The Shining, you know, they make a really big deal out of the fact that the Torrance family is dead broke and that, uh, Jack's been fired from all these jobs. And this is the last chance he has to hold on to the middle class is to take this job, this blue collar job in this fancy vacation hotel. And, um, you know, ultimately they're haunted and terrorized by all the fancy guests. Um, and y'all were talking about session nine earlier. I mean, here's this uh, mental institution where uh, these blue collar guys come in and the reason they can't leave the house is because they got to make their paycheck or even um, follow the house of Usher. There's a bit at the beginning of that story, which talks about the fact that the narrator is actually sort of a middle class uh, student kind of guy and that he knows this fancy family from college, you know, that from university, I believe. Um, and so the house is haunted and it's this rich house. So like you said, it's always about these middle class or lower middle class or even blue collar people put in situations above their station and the house itself, the, the upper class trappings drive them bonkers. I think what's interesting is also looking at the, at the psychogeographies. I know, Grady, you were talking about how you feel that places that are just haunted anyway because something horrible happened there are not as interesting as when the house is interacting with humans um, and feeding off their neuroses and paranoia. But but there are really horrible things which happen in the world all the time and, you know, all good things. I, I went to Robben Island where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned for, you know, 40 years. And stepping into that cell, this tiny cell where he spent so much of his life, is very poignant. There's, there's, there's something powerful there. Um, and that's powerful good because, you know, good came out of it. But if you go to horrible places where bad things happened, these layers of history endure. And I, I think that we are haunted by the past in the way we make mistakes over and over again. Um, and that we have to acknowledge that. And I think that kind of echoes into personal hauntings and things that we've done in our own lives. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I mean, one of the interesting things, I think, is that, um, I mean, because to me, I have a hard time with the difference between fictional and real accounts of hauntings. So that was where my, right. my irritation Right, right, right. But, yeah, but in fictional hauntings, you know, it's interesting. We make architecture and buildings a lot of times to produce an effect, whether it succeeds or not. But cathedrals are to produce a certain effect. A library is built to produce a certain effect. A grand building that Mr. Rothschild's name on is designed to produce a certain effect. The, you know, and it's really interesting to me because haunted houses are designed to produce one effect, and that's the labyrinth. Um, like, and, and the difference between a maze and a labyrinth, a maze is just a puzzle with dead ends and things, but a labyrinth, they used to be designed, it's one route and it's circuitous and it takes you to the middle. And it's almost like spinning someone around in blind man's bluff. It's designed to disorient you and make you forget about your daily life and sort of cut you off from your day-to-day -day life. And when you get to the middle, that's why a lot of times there's like a reflecting pool or a piece of statuary or like a sundial that says Tempus Fugit or something. You're supposed to reflect. You're supposed to come to some kind of realization in the middle. But the labyrinth is what the haunted house does, whether it's uh, the Overlook Hotel or in the Haunting of Hill House, where they can never quite go to the same room by the same route. Or even in um, Shining Girls, Lauren's book, um, where there's a house that's unmoored in time. And I was really thought it was fascinating how often the characters in that book spin trying to orient themselves temporarily, trying to figure out where they are. And that's what a haunted house does, is it gets you lost. It gets you disoriented. It breaks you off from your daily life and then sort of confronts you with something when you make it to the center, whether it's the Minotaur or whether it's a mirror, you know, the ghost or us or whatever it is. But, but that's what they're designed to do. And just not to sound too crass, but that was one of the interesting things about writing a haunted house book set in an Ikea, because in Ikea, the route you take through the Ikea is specifically designed to produce something called the Grun transfer, which is a bit of retail psychology, uh, which is you disorient people when they come into a space. It's the reason casinos have like densely patterned carpets and no clocks, because what happens is when people get disoriented in a new space, they walk slower, they pay more attention to their surroundings, and they're a lot more suggestible. And um, so it's, you know, labyrinths are what haunted houses are. They're designed to disorient you. So have any of you guys ever been to a haunted house in real life? I went to a very strange uh, 
house in uh, Hermanus, which is a small seaside town just outside of Cape Town, when I was 15. And uh, the house was built in 1892, and I think it was 1992. And we were there on New Year's Eve day, and um, we took a little boat across with the much older kids to go to this house. And it was just so creepy. Uh, you know, all the walls were graffitied. It was very much like the house in Blair Witch. Um, my surname was actually on the wall, which is not that unusual because it's a fairly common surname in South Africa. But it was very strange to see that there was a wire where somebody had, had been hanging a goat's head before, and then there was this just pitch black basement. And the older kids wanted to go into the basement. No, I was just like, no ways, absolutely not. And as we got there, you know, doves burst out the door. It was classic horror movie. It was ridiculous. But I certainly wouldn't have gone back there at night. And I definitely was not going into the basement. But can, we, can I just talk quickly about subsonics? Because this reflects absolutely what Brady was saying about... Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot of places feel haunted because of subsonics, which is a specific audio range uh, which reverberates deep... You know, we, we're not aware of hearing it, but, um, you know, the church organs are specifically designed to have that kind of subsonic <laughs> effect. And they've looked at a lot of haunted spaces and places that people report having seen, you know, ghosts and apparitions and terrible feelings. And it often comes down to subsonics. It's deep machinery um, or, you know, an old cooling system with the air rushing through the vents and it creates this kind of deep bass which resonates in your bones but you can't actually hear yeah there's a lot of these physical effects um there was a guy i knew a long time ago named uh, bill roll who did a lot of this research on electromagnetics and haunted houses and things like that and a British TV crew brought him over to London to do a show. And it was like a guy who was living in Soho over there, which had just been built up. And his house was an old warehouse. And they were like, look, even in this modern flat with all these modern appliances, this guy's got a ghost. And he hears like children calling his name. And he feels cold spots and his bed shakes at night. And so when they got there, Bill Roll was looking at it. And he's like, well, actually where the guy's bed is, is directly on the other side of the exterior wall of the building, and there's the transformer, the electrical transformer for the neighborhood right on the other side of that wall. So I totally want to participate in your show, but can we just move his bed to the other end of the loft and see if this stuff persists? And none of it persisted. It all went away. He never heard his name called again by children or anything. Um, and the TV crew was so pissed off. But to me, that's really fascinating. This guy was having this profound hallucinogenic experience you know this haunting that he said was a haunt he experienced it as a haunting i mean it's amazing see john langan what do you think about this whole issue of real life haunted houses well i've i've um you know my wife is scottish and so um we've spent the, the past 13 14 years we've we've spent a, a fair amount of time each year um in Scotland and in Edinburgh in, in, in particular. And I suppose in the, in the UK in general, I mean, you, you, you trip over an old house, um, every time you turn around. And, um, so I've certainly been in a lot of places that are reputed to be haunted, um, and, um, and heard some wonderful stories, um, which, you know, in and of themselves are, are, uh, are chilling. But, um, you know, sadly, <laughs> I suppose, um, I, I haven't, uh, I haven't done, you know, in, in Edinburgh, they've, they've, um, they're doing a lot of, of like midnight or, or late night ghost tours now where they take you, there were, um, various kinds of, of vaults and tunnels under the city. And so they'll take you on those and tell you that this one is haunted by this ghost and that one is haunted by that ghost. And I haven't done any of those yet, but, um, I, um, you know, I, I think for, for me as a, as a writer, um, a lot of those ghosts, I mean, in a way, they don't strike me in and of themselves as, as terribly interesting. Like we've sort of talked around this before, right? That, the, you know, so much of what it seems to me you find when you, when you deal with quote unquote real life hauntings or real world hauntings or something is a lot of repetitive action. So that, you know, oh, the, the white lady shows up at the top of the stairs and walks down to the bottom of the stairs and then walks up again. And, um, but in, in terms of, of, for me as a writer thinking about a, a meaningful narrative, um, I may need the white lady to, to do a little bit more than that. Um, and um, um, so, you know, I, I think they're kind of fascinating. Um, 
and um, and and certainly um, may form sort of seed or, or or serve as seed crystals that other narratives may form around. But um, I uh, um, I guess I, I'm more interested in in I'm more interested in other kinds of of uh, more literary hauntings, I guess. Well, well, John. I mean, do you want to tell? I mean, because you you wrote this haunted house novel that we mentioned called House of Windows. Do you want to tell us about how you chose to approach the issue of a haunted house? Um, I cheated when all was said and done. Um, I I um, I started off thinking to myself very deliberately, I want to write a haunted house narrative because I had been um, going through different tropes and in, in other stories that I'd written. So you know. What can you do with the vampire or what can you do with the werewolf or, you know, what have you? So the haunted house was a was a big one. Um, but uh, what wound up happening in the in the course of the of the narrative was that the house became or, or, or the, the novel became more about a, a, a curse, really, that a father visits upon his son, that the house perhaps amplifies that. the So so there's um, and I wanted to play this kind of. Um, I want to, to say narrative game makes it sound as if I, I was being trivial, and I don't mean it that way, but I, I wanted to suggest, well, maybe there were any number of different reasons that the house might be haunted, that it might be considered haunted, um, or maybe not. Maybe it's not related to the house in the, in the slightest. Um, so it's, it's funny. I, I mean, um, the novel ultimately became much more a kind of curse slash ghost story, and, and I think that um it's funny i was just thinking not that long ago man i need to i need to take another crack at the haunted house and see what uh see what could be done with it um and and to be honest i, I mean there was a novel by ann river siddons um called yes. uh, the house next door um and she talked about it. stephen king writes about it in, in dance macabre and one of the things that that she said to King, uh, she she they corresponded about it, was that she wanted to write a haunted house novel about a new house that that there was no, there there was no pedigree to the house. It was just this house pops up and bad things happen in it, and you know what do we make of that? And I find that really fascinating. I, I think that's actually still um, a really useful thing, a really useful way to to think about the the haunted house. Um, and also the idea of the the traveling house, I suppose you might call it, which which maybe you know, in in some ways, um, intersects what what Lauren was doing with with Shining Girls. I, I was thinking about um, uh, William Hope Hodgins' The House on the Borderlands, where you know you're in this house, and the next minute you're fighting pig monsters on another planet, or um, or even a kind of grade Z. Well. Uh, well, what grade would you give it? But anyway, Event Horizon, which mm. has its problems, but which nonetheless, you know, it's 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 the house. The house goes to hell and comes back. You know, the spaceship goes to hell and comes back. And it's another one of those narratives where you can't escape because you're on a spaceship. Um, and I, I don't think it's a completely successful movie, but um, which is why I say you know you can't I can't say it's a great even a great B. Uh, sci-fi horror film, but it's there's a lot of stuff in it that I think is really cool. Can I say something really quick about The Traveling House? Because I was going to say, you know, one of the things when I was talking earlier about knowing the backstory of the space and how much scary, because John, when you're talking about the, uh, the house next door, that's a house where we get no backstory. It's built and it's a terrible, terrible place. Um, and I actually, in Shining Girls, I found the house so much more ominous and scary than Harper, because Harper, we get his interior thoughts. You know, he gets hungry, he has to go to the bathroom, he's a dude, he makes mistakes. But the house is sort of unknowable. And it's mo it seems to have motivations and things, but they're never quite spelled out. And and so I found it's I found the house so much scarier because we knew so much less about it. Well, I was particularly interested in in curses and compulsions and the idea of free will versus determinism. And in many ways, Harper is haunted by the house, um, you know, and, and it seems to have laid out this plan for him. And it is it is explained, but it's very subtle. 
Right. I mean, you get ideas and there are hints. And I mean, I read it like a while back. So, I mean, it's not that old, but, but I remember getting hints and feelings, but ultimately I felt like Harper was another victim of the house and the house was the real monster and, and monstrous because we don't know anything about it because, you know, a, a friend is just a monster where we just happen to know a lot about them. Like a monster is a monster because we don't know anything about it. Yep. I see, Grady. Do you want to? We mentioned that you have this uh, this new novel called Horror Store about a haunted IKEA, which seems like one of the most unlikely sort of premises for a haunted house story, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about how that how you came up with that? Well, I mean, that really was. I was talking to my editor, and we were trying. He had just rejected a haunted house book of mine called McMansions of the Damned, and um, and uh, but we were talking about updating haunted house books, and we were talking about big box retail stores, and that would be a you know. You know, that Willie Sutton quote, like, why do you rob banks? Because that's where all the money is. It's like, why are houses haunted? Because that's where all the people are. And I feel like now people are spending so much time at work. We actually spend more time at work than we do with our families um, a lot of the time. And so we were talking about big box retail stores. And then I think he said it first, but it was just Ikea. And it was like, oh, my God, that makes so much sense. And then I started looking into it and that whole idea of that groom transfer and that they call it the natural path at Ikea, that bendy route you have to take through the showroom floor. And I wanted to write something about work because I think work is what we do with our lives with most of it. Um, and, and there's not a lot of books about it really, or, or books that I've read about. It. I mean, they're out there, but, um, and you know, one of the really interesting things about, um, an Ikea, a haunted Ikea, is you also have this whole element of, um, you know, I think, what's the technical term if you're scared of a doll or a lifelike, a humanoid object that's not alive? Uncanny Valley? It's, no, there's a, oh, it's auto, automatonophobia. Um, and, and in Ikea, you're presented with all these fake rooms. I mean, they're almost like mannequins of rooms, and no one's ever going to sleep in there. Like, no one's ever going to have dinner at that table, but it's set up as if it's just waiting for someone who's going to be there any minute to have dinner. And so it instantly, like, I mean, a haunted Ikea just, like, really um, seemed obvious. My my big challenge was I was worried someone was going to beat me to the punch. Um, and I had to twist. I had to make it not an Ikea because, A, I interviewed a lot of people who work for Ikea, and they really love their jobs. Um, but, B... Um, Ikea always has someone in it. Like at two in the morning, the replenishment crew comes on, which is oftentimes as big as, if not bigger than the crew that's there during the day. And they're the ones who like change the slip covers on the sofas and dust the fake computers and restock the bulla bulla bins and pull the picks and, you know, do the cleaning and stuff. So I needed to be empty at night. So it wasn't an Ikea. Uh, what sort of reactions have you been getting to the book radio? I saw that you were in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, just what sort of... Uh... Yeah, no, John, John was in there with me, uh, giving expert haunted house commentary. Um, it's been good, but you know, I mean, it's online attention. Like it's, I haven't seen the sales numbers. So it's like the snakes on the plane problem. Lots of people talk about it online, but are they buying tickets? I don't know. Um, but people seem to be getting a kick out of it. And it's weird to me because there's only 30 something Ikeas in America. Um, if I tell people I've got a haunted house book, their eyes glaze over. If I tell people I've got a haunted Ikea book, they're like, Oh, I get it. Um, and there's only 30 something of them in America, but like everyone has an opinion about an Ikea. They know what that means. It's, it's weird how much like psychological geography Ikea takes up. And is this a funny book in addition to being a scary book? Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm incapable of, of writing something that's completely has no jokes in it. Um, probably I'm deeply insecure or something. But uh, so it is funny. I mean, you know, work is funny. Work is one of those things that's like horrible and funny all at the same time. Um, horrible, funny and soul deadening all at the same time. And I think horror exists sort of hand in hand with humor because they're both designed to sort of make you have an involuntary physical reaction. So yeah, there, there's funny in it. But um, and it was nice to have characters in it who are wannabe. And there's two characters who are wannabe Ghostbusters. They want to be on one of those reality shows. Because one of the big problems with haunted house books is everyone runs away from the ghost. As soon as you know it's a ghost, everyone runs away. So it was nice to have two characters who, as soon as they saw a ghost, they run towards it. Mm -hmm. uh, well, let's talk a little bit. I did want to talk a little bit about funny haunted house stories. Um, somebody, one of our listeners mentioned the Evil Dead movies, which are kind of like that. And then, Lauren, in your list, you have Beetlejuice. Do you want to just say a little bit about funny haunted house stories? 
Um, well, I think horror comedy is very effective, and um, it it does provoke that same kind of gasp, knee jerk reaction. Um, and and it's interesting going to go and see a movie like The Conjuring and hearing people laugh out loud with relief afterwards. You know, after the scares. Obviously, The Conjuring is not a funny movie, but there is a certain catharsis there, and I think the movies that are able to combine the two are even more effective. Um, and it's great to have the scares and the laughs. Uh, John Langan, funny, funny haunted house movies or books. Yeah. I mean, evil dead is, is uh, those, those movies, the, the, the Raimi movies, um, they really fascinate me because Raimi is, is on the one hand, he's, he's simultaneously so over the top and yet such the conscious and self-conscious craftsman. So, um, he, he, is showing you, you know, buckets of blood sometimes. I mean, literally buckets of blood sometimes. But at the at the same time, there's a kind of a wink there. There's a, there's a kind of a, a wit to what he's doing. Um, that uh, that yeah puts you in this to, to me this really interesting and um, almost like destabilizing kind of place. Um, what it what it makes me think of that there were these moments um, when you know Bruce Campbell, especially in Evil Dead too when Bruce Campbell is just laughing maniacally and it becomes, it's funny. We, we laugh because he's laughing, but then it also becomes very disturbing. Um, and, and oddly enough, I mean, it, it takes me back to um, the, uh, the early episodes of Scooby-Doo. I, I can remember they were one of the cable networks was, um, was, was showing Scooby-Doo from the beginning. And, and uh, my, my younger son was a little bit younger than he is now. He was, he was probably like seven or eight. And I said, oh, let's watch Scooby-Doo. And I, I thought to myself, um, oh, well, you know, it, it'll be good for him because, you know, the, they're monsters, but they're not real monsters. You always find out it was old man Jenkins at the end. And what was fascinating to me was that at least for the first several episodes, four or five, six episodes, uh, the monsters don't growl. They, they don't um, snarl. They don't gnash their teeth. They laugh. And those laughs are utterly horrifying. They're, they're, it's actually really, really scary. Um, and so, you know, we're watching it and he's like, I'm afraid. And I'm like, don't be afraid. Um, so I, I think um, what, what, you know, what someone like Rainey is able to do, I, I think that, it's been a while since I've seen the the house movies, um, but the the first one of those was was trying, I think, for something similar, a, a kind of a, a, a witty approach to the supernatural. Um, the, there are scary things, yes, but there's also um, it doesn't shy away from the the um, from the, the humorous possibilities uh, in the in the material. I did want to say two things about Beetlejuice because I really loved that movie when I was growing up. And the two things that really stick in my mind from that one is, is one, the idea that when you die, you, you, ha you find this handbook for the recently deceased and that it's just this bureaucratic thing and that death is just boring and there's so many people dying and it's not a big deal at all to the people who are already dead and you just kind of get subsumed into this bureaucracy. And then, but then the other thing is that if you stray too far from where you died, you end up in this... Uh, desert landscape with these sandworms that kind of have uh, striped patterns on them. And that just scared the crap out of me as a kid. I don't know how scary it is if you watch it as, as an adult, but I've, I've really never been able to get those creepy Halloween colored sandworms out of my mind. The things which scared me as a kid were, um, I, I never even saw the movie, but uh, I think it was Troll and it had the trolls coming out of the toilet. And that just scared the living daylights out of me. And the other was um, the fridge in Ghostbusters. That scared the pants off me because because it's this safe domestic thing and you could go to the fridge in the middle of the night and open it and it would be horrible. Um, I think Cabinet, you know, coming back to the humor thing, I think Cabin in the Woods is interesting because, because it uses the humor, again, to kind of offset and subvert your expectations. The scene where the one young woman is you know, making out with the wolf's head on the wall and you're just waiting for it to bite her face off and it's funny and awful and you don't know what to expect and that's that's really interesting. Well, you know, one of the things about the funny, awful thing is that, um, you know, the only thing the four of us really have in common uh, is we're all going to die. But dying is like this 
on the one hand, it's this very... Think for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Unless we have a really good escape plan worked in. But it's like one of these things where it's the most profound and and thing in our lives. It gives everything we do structure that we're going to die. And yet at the same time, there there is no way to think about dying or what happens after we die in any kind of way that is not deeply, deeply hilarious. Because then you start to, well, wait, how is this organized? I mean, I had a relative who took a class on Revelations because she was convinced that when the end times came, she was one of the chosen people who was going to be organizing everything for Jesus. And I was like, well, what do you mean organize? She's like, well, you know, I'm going to get instructions and show people where to go. And <laughs> I thought, this is great. Like, you know, how is heaven organized? Who goes there? Like, where's the refreshments? Are there movies? Like, do we get H- free HBO? Like, you know, or or do we get reincarnated? Really? I'm going to turn into like an otter? Like, there's no way to think about death that's not like, funny because we can't wrap our heads around it in any kind of sane way so it immediately sort of breaks down to being funny and horrible simultaneously you know grady i love grady's idea of um you know the haunted ikea and i think that is essentially what haunted houses are about is about a vacant space and i found this when i was doing research on my new novel broken monsters in detroit and going into these ruins of old places like you know, I mean, real kind of urban exploring, ruin porn stuff, which I also try to subvert in the novel. But you step into these places and there is a vacancy. And it's what you bring to that vacancy, whether it's your own baggage and, you know, malaise and malevolence and, you know, psychology, or whether there's something there waiting to feed into it is what makes it so interesting. And that, that dynamic of this kind of, of what rushes in to fill the vacuum. Is really the haunting. Well, Lauren, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Broken Monsters? Just what's the story about? Um, Broken Monsters, it's kind of about Detroit as a ghost city um, instead of a ghost town and haunted by history. But it is, it's about the, it's about how Detroit is actually full of life um, and that it's not this dead place. And I think it is what rushes in to fill that vacancy. And it is about a uh, an artist who is kind of possessed by an incredible vision to remake the world. And bodies start turning up around Detroit that are very strange. And the first is a young boy who's been cut in half and somehow fused to the lower half of a deer. So it's a very, very much kind of a pan or puck figure. And things get stranger from there. But I was very interested in, in dilapidated places and how people have all the symbolism that they attach to Detroit um, and, you know, the foreclosed houses and the abandoned movie theaters and the, you know, empty automotive plants and what that means and, and what, what might spring up there. Can I actually throw something in real fast that I wanted to say earlier when John was talking about haunting haunted houses as a class thing is, you know, there is one show on TV that's about haunted houses and it's one of the most popular shows, or it was from the U.S., which is Hoarders. I mean, here are these houses that are completely out of control, and they're full of these things. Like, the things have won. They've beaten the person. And they all have a backstory. There, there's this monster in the center of every house, which is the hoarder, who's lit the inanimate objects win. And they have these backstories, and they're almost, like, cursed. And then the Ghostbusters come in, and they clean up the house. And you watch these things, and you feel pity and terror and you think thank god that's not me could that be me you look around your own house and you feel uneasy about uh, these magazines do i need them and the most tragic moment in those shows is always at the very end when they say you know we cleaned out the house and then three months later so and so was hoarding dead cats again like it really is the haunted house narrative well, that's interesting, Grady, because I listened to a podcast one time where it was these two guys and they were former ghost hunters and they had eventually concluded that ghosts aren't real. But <laughs> uh, but the guy said that what really did it for him was after investigating, I don't know, like a hundred haunted houses or something, what he noticed was that the houses were never haunted, but the people were haunted, that yeah. the person would, the person had been, you know, observing weird things had been happening to them their whole life. Or at least they had been, they had had the uh, impression that weird things were happening to them their whole life. And once they left, the house was fine. 
And yes. it, that it, it, as you were kind of getting at earlier, it was always haunted people, not haunted places. Well, there's an amazing, I'm sorry to, to go on, but there's an amazing documentary that came out about two years ago called My Amityville Horror. And like the Amityville Horror is done. It's solved. I mean, Daniel Lutz, who is 10 years old, he was one of the kids in the Lutz family who was in the house. He made this documentary with this filmmaker. And we know what was in that house. We know it was haunted. And it was it was abuse. There was an abuse. His, his mother's new husband, uh, who was the one who sort of like started the ball rolling and did the book and did all that PR, he was abusing these kids. And that's what haunted that house. And it ruined those children's lives, or at least Daniel. He's not in a lot of contact with his siblings, it looks like. Um, but it, so it's the people. It's not the house ever. And one of the things that makes me so sick to my stomach is that while people have been running around, you know, all these parapsychologists and things, oh, the Amityville horror was the demons. It was this. It was that. Look at this photo. Oh, and this photo, that's a flash. And, you know, debunking it and rebunking it, and unbunking it and skeptics and believers and all this. At the heart of that haunting was a man abusing his sons and no one ever stopped to listen to them. No one ever did anything for those kids and it followed them for the rest of their lives. And it's, it's so tragic, but it's exactly what you're saying. It was the people. It wasn't the house. All right. So unfortunately, we do need to start wrapping this up. Uh, before we do, Grady, you had a, a New York City horror event you wanted to mention? Oh, yeah. So on October 27th at uh, 7 o'clock, John and myself and Ellen Datlow and Laird Barron, Sarah Langan and JT Petty, the horror film director, we're all going to be doing an event at the Strand Bookstore called Everything is Terrifying, where we're going to be talking about uh, the things in real life that terrify us. It's it's free. All you have to do is buy one of our books. It's uh, John's books are going to be there. Laird's, everyone's going to have their books out. You buy a book, you can sit there and listen to all these people, all of whom are more qualified than I am, talking about what actually is scary in real life. And I'm going to try to make it to that, too. So if you're in town, Yay. you know, swing by. Um, but otherwise, I think we need to wrap things up there. So, uh, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much for having us, Dave. And that was our panel. So thanks again to Lauren Bukas, John Langan, and Grady Hendricks for joining us as guests. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including William Miner, who writes, More fun than biting the head off a chicken. I've been listening to the podcast for about three and a half years now. The dulcet tones of David Barr Kirtley have always been music to my ears, not to mention the impressive arsenal of SFF knowledge brought to bear by both hosts as well as their guests. One thing that really puts this above other geek content is that the material is treated in a serious and sophisticated way. Not to say there are no, wow, this is totally awesome moments, because there is a healthy surfing of geeking out, but it's counterbalanced by thoughtful discussions throughout. Highly recommended. P.S. I'm a fan of the new format that's currently being demoed. I hope it sticks. So big thanks again to William Miner for that great review. And of course, a huge thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including our newest crowdfunder, Ole Bjorsvik from Norway, who just became crowdfunder number 91. I'd also like to give a very special thank you to crowdfunder number 44, Johan Lucas Arenberg from Switzerland, who just made a very generous $50 contribution to the show. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Leonid Levchenko, Abigail Drake, and Wes Weathersby. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.